uh, afternoon, uh, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thanks especially for Ramon Sarra and Elizabeth Ewert uh, for uh, inviting me to, to present my research. Uh, as some of you know, I am a Brazilian anthropologist working with the charm of things. And uh, especially sculptures of gods that uh, migrant Hindus from Diu, Gujarat, brought and continue to bring to or create in Mozambique. Uh, what I want to do today is organized in three parts that we can see here. I will start by describing the background of this research, which goes back to when I lived for a year in Mozambique, conducting field research to my uh, PhD in anthropology. In the second part, I will describe the changes that my research went through as a result of my current position as an, arch, an anthropologist in the Arch History Department. Uh, this was a turning, a turning point in my ethnographic interest since my focus shifted from social reproduction to, ma to material culture and more specifically to those objects that Hindu people in Mozambique believe have the power to act. Finally, in the third part, I briefly discuss how my research trajectory brought me here, drawing from current anthropological literature on ethnographic collections in museums and researching about magic ritual, religion, and belief inside and outside of Pitt Rivers Museum. With this research project, I am looking for new inspiration to deal with the narratives about the agency of Hindu things in Mozambique. However, as often happens, my research project about the Pitt Rivers Museum also changed since I began the investigation at the end of the last March. Therefore, my third point ends with a description of my current dilemmas. I hope I can present these three points clearly enough to invite you to help me to think about my current challenges regarding my ethnographic interests. Then now, from uh, ethnography and social history versus cast of mind. I will begin by talking about my PhD and my first postdoctoral field research, which started when I spent a year researching in Mozambique and then continued as I progressed through postdoctoral studies when I spent around more 20 months doing field work in Mozambique, South Africa, and Lisbon. The subject of this research project was the Hindu migration from Diu, Gujarat, to Mozambique. Drawing on ethnographic and historical perspectives, I rejected traditional interpretation about this subject. 
and showed how people became Hindu in Southeast Africa through shared practices of marriage. Ethnography and history of the Hindu family. Archaeological data show that people from Asia have been traveling to and living in East Africa since at least the 15th century BCA. In addition, historians show that Hindus from Gujarat had maritime trade through the Indian Ocean before the Portuguese arrived in the 15th century. However, even today, migrants from this area are perceived as strangers in Mozambique and South Africa. In addition, traditional literature on the Gujarats in Southeast Africa treats the caste and Brahmanism as an all-inclusive and homogeneous analytical categories in order to describe the experience of all migrants from the area that eventually became what is nowadays India. These theories have been supported through evidence of the endogamy, endogamy praxi of Hindu marriage. My research shows that this interpretation does not take into consideration historical practices that migrants from Gujarati built in their migration to East Africa. In addition, this interpretation began from a misunderstanding or a historical ideas about caste. I have adopted a different stance on the subject based on my review of the East Africa historical literature, the anthropological review of castes, and my field work, uh, my anthropological field work. My historical review shows that across the history of Gujarat migration, there are different features. In other words, despite being old, it has not always been the same. For example, until the 19th century, only single men went to East Africa and for a limited period of time. They worked as itinerant peddlers. And when they had enough money to get married, they would go back to Diu or to other places in Gujarat. In the late 19th century, when the structures of the European colonial state were established in Southeast Africa, the Gujarat migration changed. Since then, migration has included women, children, and elderly. At that time, for the first time, Gujarat families started to build their own house, shops, and temples in Southeast Africa. There are some specific features about the Mozambique island in KwaZulu-Natal that I can describe in the discussion. Sograria versus Casta. 
To conduct my field work about the social reproduction of Hindu families in Mozambique, I lived in Inyambani, a coastal city in the south of Mozambique, for one year. In this city, there were 40 families of Hindu shopkeepers. There, I learned Gujarati language. I also spent time observing their practices in their shops, in their kitchen, and in their domestic and their public temples. Then we can see some shops and kitchens and temples, domestic temples and public temples. Inspired by the anthropological critics regarding the use of caste from European literature, I look at for local categories, especially those that are shared by Hindus and non-Hindus in Mozambique. Uh, the field work shows, although usually Hindus speak Gujarat and non-Hindus speak Gitonga, Shangana, Chopi and another Bantu language, they all use the Portuguese word Sograria. Sograria is used to talk about the place and the link between a married man and the parents of his wife. It means that sograria is a word used in respect to the relationship between married men and their in-law. The use of the word sograria in Portuguese by those families showed me a shared experience that started with the transformations caused by the European colonial period in Southeast Africa. This shared experience left today's, today's history of current Hindu shopkeepers more similar to today's history of ordinary Mozambican people than to the history of the rich Hindu merchants. Most of them organized by castes described in the literature. Capulanas for Lobolo and Sari for Dowry. At the end of the 19th century, the transformations caused by the European colonial period forced African people to work for money. Required to pay the tax of the palhota, the Portuguese word for native house, the natives of Portuguese East Africa had to work on colonial buildings, work as farmhands in plantation, or as miners in the lands of the rand. The best paying jobs were in the Transvaal mines. The men who worked in these mines were known as magaissas. When the Magaissas crossed the border from the Hansland to get back to Portuguese East Africa, they had to pay the tax of Palhota and buy things of their families from the shopkeepers. 
most of the shopkeepers were linked to merchant network organized by Hindu Gujarat companies. These shopkeepers were known as Diveshas, people who come from Diu in Gujarat. It was the ambiguous relationship between the Hindus merchant capital and the Portuguese and English colonial interests in the Southeast area that promoted the settlement of Hindus shops, Hindus families, and Hindus temples in Southeast Africa at the end of the 19th century. A comparative story of the Hindu diversas migration from Gujarat to East Africa and the history of the Magaissas migration from East Africa to the Rand's land shows that both migrations were affected by European colony history. The organization of the European colony put in contact two sorts of economic transactions in marriage, the dowry and the lobolo. At this moment, of, uh, both of them, these two marriage economic transactions, began to be made with fabric and then purchased for money. It means that divashas had to buy saris for dowry and Magaissas had to buy Capulanas for Lobolo. Capulanas and Saris were different sorts of fabric that have been made by English textile industries since the 18th century, during which period the British subjugated the Indian textile industries and traded in the Indian Ocean through Hindu trader networks. The Hindus networks were formed with the capital of the rich merchants from Gujarat. This capital had played an important role in several European, European investments since the 15th century in the exploitation of ivory, gold and slaves, in plantations as well as being a center for, for the trading of fabric and other products in mining areas in Southeast Africa. At the end of the 19th century, when the colonial borders of Southeast Africa were defined, both Divashas and Magaissas, who were expropriated men, meet each other. Divashas who migrate from Diu to Inhambane in Portuguese East Africa had to buy saris for their own dowry. In order to pay, to pay for, this, for the saris, they sold fabrics called capulanas to the Magaissas. Magaissas who migrated from Inhambane to the Rensland had to buy capulanas for their own lobolo. The Magaissas sold their labor as miners in order to pay for such capulanas. Both of them had to buy fabrics 
to offer to their sograria. The Portuguese word sograria allowed these men to understand each other and, in spite of their particular position to support their families, in the particular position that their families occupied in colonial history, they shared this historical experience and were part of the modernization process from a subaltern position. In the light of sograria in the social history of things such as Capulanas and Saris, I suggest that today's Hindu shopkeepers in Mozambique became Hindu in their history of migration. It means that they were submitted to a modernization process, which gave them the chance to participate in the construction of modern Hindu ideas and practices since their migrant, migrant experience. Uh, the exile of Ram. My second point is about the change I, changes I had in my ethnographic, ethnographic interest, motivated by my current position as a professor in the art history department. I started with the sculptures of Hindu gods. When I began my activities in the art history department back in 2011, I started to focus on uh, a group of pictures of God sculptures and the narratives I recorded about them in my material of research. The Hindus call these sculptures murtis. I will show you some, some of these murtis. An important part of murtis are the deities related uh, with the great Hindu epics, as Shiva, Ganesh, Krishna, Radha, Ra Hanumandi, Parvatri, Ram, Sitar. Although no, these gods can, can be depicted in a variety of materials. There are a lot of murtis standardized by the Indian murtis industry, as this Krishna and Radha in a domestic temple in Maputo, the main city of Mozambique. There is another relevant sort of murtis made by local artists, as this Amba, made by Jaime Tembe, the temple's cook at Indushiri Ram in Salamanga, Mozambique. There are those made by Hindu residents of Mozambique, as this the Ganesh Murti, probably made in 1914. And finally, there are those that are understood as natural or designed as the fruit of divine intervention, such as the stone that one family found in the Inyarimi River in Inyambani, where Radha Krishna was, was born. Or the link of Shankar 
found beneath a tree in Inhambane in the 19th century. There is also a set of local or regional murtis, Jalarambapa, or shipped in Gujarat coast and East Africa, made by the industry. There are also characters whose uh, narratives occur in Mozambique, as the case of Kalidas Bapa. Finally, there are murtis of ancestors or uh, of people of the Indian community and, and sometimes Muslim that are not made by the Indian industry but by local artists. I will not show you pictures of this one because people of Mozambique ask me not show their pictures. Uh, I am showing you these murtis to highlight that these narratives suggest an imagination that is part of the consumption imposed by the industry of God sculptures, saris, pictures, food, and other items from the modern Indus conception. There are no significant difference between a Mozambican artist and an Indian artist to make sculptures of Hindu God. There are no significant difference between the established and well-known gods of Hindu and regional or ancestral gods, including Muslim ancestors. There are the inclusion of the experience in Mozambique as part of Hindu cosmologies and practices. This last feature can be seen in the holy stones found in Mozambique, also in holy rivers and holy narratives, like the Kalidas Bapa, which I will tell you about now. Run in Southeast Africa or Southwest India. In 2013, I went back to Mozambique to look for the Murtis and their narratives. I conducted new, new field work about the sculptures in a Hindu tem temple in Salamanga, a small village on the border of South Africa and Mozambique. I started studying this history of this temple because I was intrigued by the motive that led the Hindus to construct a temple in a village such as Salamanga, a place that does not fit the standard for housing, not for the temple locations that had been inaugurated during the colonial period up and down in the East Africa coast. Since then, I have inquired Hindus in Mozambique about the choice of Salamanga to build this temple there and the fact that it has remained in Salamanga until now. The response that I received was the narrative 
of a journey in a lotus flower or in a flying carpet of a saint named Kalidas Bapa in the beginning of the 20th century. Kalidas Bapa, uh, who came from Diu or Inhambane, indicated Salamanga as an special pure place appropriate to worship Ram. In this narrative, the temple was constructed in 1914 in order to follow the will of Kalidas Bapa. The building includes a collection of sculptures showing Kalidas Bapa as he worships Ram, Sita, and Lakshman. The temple in the extreme south of Mozambique depicts the exile narrated in the Ramayana. It also depicts Kalidas Bapa worshipping in Salamanga classical characters of the Hindu epics. For more than 100 years, Hindus from Mozambique, South Africa, Swaziland, Uganda, Tanzania, Malawi, Portugal, England, and India have visited and performed rituals in this temple. From time to time, the temple was guarded by pujaris, a kind of priest. However, the building remained for long periods without pujaris and without a local Hindu communities or Hindus living nearby cities. According to a series of narratives, the temple with its sculptures acted to protect, it, to protect itself as, as well as the surrounding residents, mostly non-Hindus in times of war and hunger. The narratives of the power of this temple are similar to those that speak of other sacred places in Mozambique and South Africa from a variety of religions. This similarity again can be interpreted as part of the shared experience that Hindu and non-Hindu people have had together in the modernization process in Southeast Africa. And this shared experience make us ask about the imaginary boundary that until now kept on in the practices of people. Are Ran and Kalidas Bapa worshipped in Southeast Africa or in Southwest India? What are Africa and India about? The charm of things. Since taking up my new position as professor in Arch History Department, I've, I have looked for new theoretical inspiration to deal with the charm of Hindu sculptures in Mozambique. This is because I intended uh, to conduct a research project in the Pitt Rivers Museum. My interest was to learn how the anthropology about objects inside the museum have dealt 
with the agency of objects after recent epistemological critiques. However, as it is common in ethnographic research project, since I started it, I have changed it. Uh, this change uh, resulted from the strategies I have uh, used to improve my English and to know life in, Ox life in Oxford from a different point of view. My first observations and talks with the Pitt Rivers Museum visitors and staff, and my first literature review. What follows is the, present the presentation of the theoretical questions that organize this research and two moments of the research I have done inside and outside of Pitt Rivers Museum. What are the consequences of the recent epistemological critiques for the anthropological objects inside the museum? In my anthropology classes of ethnography collections, my students have learned about Pitt Rivers Museum history. They have read about the difference between the two first approach to collect and arrange ethnographic material, the armchair anthropologists and the formation of scientific anthropology. For both these approaches, the museum is a place where the cosmology of the collector replaces the cosmology of the creator and the user of these objects. But what happened after the critique of the assumptions that organized modern anthropology as a scientific category? Since the 1918s, and from different bases, the pillars of scientific assumption in the heart of the anthropological approach have been attacked. The inspiration that provoked my study is based on ethnographic research on Amazonic societies with Carlos Fausto, Joana Overing, and Eduardo Viveiros de Castro, uh, African societies, Jean and John Komarov, Ramon Sahó, and Johannes Fabian. Melanesian societies, with Merlin Stratern, and other groups that have not totally submitted to the logic of modernity, as uh, Oscar Saez in Brazil. All this research feeds the anthropological critique and, trade, and tried uh, to show the idealization of scientific role in the production of knowledge. It also shows the links between the science perceptions and the established powers. Joana Overing, for example, asks about the political reasons that ensured that since the end of the 16th century, there was the creation of a single conception of true, lacking time, practicality, local and moral interests. 
Also, she suggests the link between this conception of two, based on a restricted opposition between nature and culture, and the violence of the power. In addition, John and Jean Komarov contrast the charm of the organization of modern life based on the fetishism of money with the notions of immortal soldiers in South Africa civil wars to show the muted limits of the production of Western truths and their links with the violence of modernity. My question is with regard to how these reflections impacted the certainty that once these objects were outside of their original setting in which they were attributed agency, they were submitted to understanding of collectors. Uh, <clears throat> first observation inside the Petrivers uh, Museum. From the research projects of Pit Rivers Museum, uh, I got information about the history of the collection, the history of their main collectors and curators, the general features, uh, the biography of some objects, the aspects of some specific collection, and analysis regarding some collections or objects, such as the witch in a bottle. One important data point in this review regarding the magical objects was that the Pit Rivers Museum is not the biggest collection of exotic objects outside Europe, but it is a big collection of European magic objects. My first exercise, side-by-side -side literature review, was to know if the daily routine in the Pit Rivers Museum is affected by the power of the amulets and charms or other objects from the magic, ritual, religion, and belief collection. I found some cue in uh, the literature review and the research done by the Pit Rivers curators. O'Hallam, for example, registered in the Pit Rivers uh, a road within the reason to the staff removed the Zuni war god from the display of the museum. The relocation was due out of consideration of the Pueblo Zuni beliefs. From the research projects, the other within and the small blessing, we can read biographies of a lot of objects. Most biographies describe the life of these objects when they were outside of the museum. However, some biographies show that the research started because of the life of some object inside of the museum. For example, this investigation of Chris Wingfield about the uh, witch ladder donated by the Taylor's wife, and the biography of an uh, endowing purse by Linda Mowart. In the daily routine of the Pit Rivers Museum, I have listened the audio tour, I have talked with the staff member working the galleries, 
with the friends of the pit rivers and with the visitors. Also, I have just observed objects and visitors seeing the collections. The audio tour explained that the two guardian figures of Burmanese Buddhism are positioned to guard the entrance of the museum as they had done in their original temples. The staff that works in the galleries and the, friend, and the friends of Pitt Rivers who organize the weekly high tours told me that the Raven transformation mask from the Haida people was used in a ritual in the museum. The staff also told me that there are some visitors who bow to the god sculptures. In addition, the conservation staff take care to run, handle some objects according prescri prescriptions from their original context. With the visitors, there are different differences between the Asian or descendants of Asians and Europeans. Today, I will focus on Europeans, but we can talk about Asians in the discussion. With some uh, exceptions, the conversations with them showed me that they are like those described in George Stocking Jr., predominantly white, upper middle class, and above average in education. They can be differentiated in Christians and agnostics. For both of them, the amulets and charm collection, collections is exotic, folkloric, and even comical. I highlight two aspects here to make a comparative contrast in the ne next last point. First, Christians, even those who showed me their crucifix around their necks or their Bibles in their bags, consider themselves and the use of these objects as rational. Christians and agnostics consider their opinion about the amulets and charms in the Pit Rivers Museum based on objective evidence. Agnostic and Christian individuals consider themselves to be rational people. The apparent opposition between rationality and magic was demonstrated by Evans Preacher in the 1940 through his study on Azandi witchcraft. Since then, in regard to this opposition, the work of anthropologists has been to look for the basis that sustain each rationality. And uh, the hierarchical position that they occupy in the social structure. With the next point, I will show you how I am trying to do that. Uh, the research outside of Pitt Rivers Museum. Uh, as you probably already understood, my English is not very good. 
And to improve my pronunciation, I began to sing in two community, uh, community choir and in a community singing group. I chose a choir and not an English course uh, because I love singing and because when I did my research in Mozambique with Gujarat speakers, uh, the more effective way to improve my Gujarat was from my efforts to sing with them. In addition, these activities have opened new constructive opportunities for me to expand my research in Mozambique and here in Oxford. In this place, I have met people and talked about my research. Again, I have had some conversations that resembled the conversations I had with people inside the Petrivers Museum. However, there are some people, especially those that live in Blackbird Lees or around Cowley Center, with whom I have had different conversations. First of all, most of them have never visited the Peach Rivers Museum. With them, I can't talk about the amulets and charm collections inside the museum. But we talk about their be beliefs in the agency of objects. They told me about the stones to protect animals against evil, about sympathetic magic to, to cure disease, and about object, objects against the evil eye. In addition, they told me several versions of some floral tributes in the street trees. Oh, sorry, it's not this. Oh, here. Um, in front of Pitt Rivers Museum, uh, in Haddington Park, in front of the policy station at Cowley Road and on the bank of the Thames River. Uh, as you probably know, uh, the Blackbird Lease in the area around the Cowley Center after the Between Towns Road is an area in Oxford related to automotive history. This industry caused the migration of many poor people from ex-colonies and poor British families to Oxford between the 1930 and 1960. The people I have met in there descend from those that moved during this migration process. They work today cleaning and doing kitchen service in colleges. They are workers in the BMW plant or are retired or have been laid off from BMW and other automotive companies. I have also met supermarket cashier, sales staff in clothes shops and show shops, and other semi-skilled or unskilled workers. They have told me about Oxford from a different point of view that from the people who have university backgrounds or from tourists. The people who lived in Blackbird Lees or around Cowley Center 
resent the university and its dominant position in Oxford. Of course, this disdain is ambiguous and is linked to the wish to be part of this university pride. But show me an, another world inside Oxford. Now, I have been trying to think about this difference. Here in Oxford, one of the most important city of the ex-metropolis colonial, since my position as an anthropologist who came from an ex-colony and who makes research in other ex-colonies. It's clear to me that in both of these worlds, here in the ex-colonial metropolis at Oxford and in the ex-colonies such as Brazil and Mozambique, everybody shares the historical experience of being enchanted by the power of things. Everybody, including us here, goes to the market to send our free bodies in exchange for things as money in order to buy other things. All of us also accepted, accept that this thing called money is equivalent to things with different qualities, such as clothing, food, poetry, light, heat, internet, sculptures, amulets, knowledge, or medicine. But it's, it is also clear that in Brazil, the difference between people from the middle and upper class and people from the periphery is enormous. A good example to think about that is that my colleagues in the university and I take our daily routine without the fear that our children may become victims of the horrible statistics regarding the hundreds, hundreds of Brazilians between 15 and 25 years of age that are killed each day. It means that families linked with, with the university in Brazil are living an experience clearly apart from the families of the Brazilian periphery. Here in Oxford, this difference is different. I am trying to think about that with Raymond Williams in his novel, Second Generation. In the first paragraph of this book, Williams wrote about this difference here in Oxford. If you stand today in between Towns Road, you can, you can see either way, west to the spires and towers of the cathedral and colleges, east to the yard and sheds of the motor works. You see different words, but there is no frontier between them. There is only the movement and traffic of a single city. Here in Oxford, this city 
where we can listen to the bells of the church in several places, the traffic and the movement is more fluid than in Brazil or Mozambique. But I have inquired only into the apparently innocent daily routine of the university life in Oxford with church services, charity actions, employing a surprising number of professionals in the sectors of education and commerce, the graduation ceremonies, the weddings ceremonies, formal dinners in the colleges, the use of engagement rings and other practices, is linked with the reproduction of knowledge based on a unitary vision of, vision of reality and truth. In our shared contemporary experience, how the knowledge can describe and analyze objects, practices, and cosmologies that did, did not die. Objectives, practices, and cosmologies that do not become similar of objectives, practices, and cosmologies of the dominant model of life. Conclusions. The charm of a single city. The African arch historian Abdul Silah describes, describes that in the colonial period, the Christian rationality knew that some African societies believe that there isn't a separate place for the dead. It means that dead people continue in the world of the living people. Dead people are not in the past. They are now here between us. And they have demands and orders. And living people must answer these demands. According to Abdul Silah, this insistence, the insistence of the Christian colonialist in aff affirming this idea as fetishistic was related to the fear of the Christian rationality that this idea could challenge its own cosmology. In this way, I am trying to analyze the tension between two opinions and practices about amulets and charms here in Oxford. The opinion that classify the belief in amulets and charm as fetishistic is similar of the opinion of anthropology that study objects in museums today. I'm not sure about it. The literature review conducted until now showed me curatorial solutions, but has not introduced theoretical reflections about these questions. However, this opinion is similar to my own opinion when I started thinking about the agency of Hindu sculptures in Mozambique. At that time, Hindu people told me that they had built the temple Siri Ram in Salamanga 
because of the Kalidas Bapa. This man who came from Diu or Inhambane in a lotus flower or a flying carpet and choose that place because he understood that the Maputo River was a holy place to worship Ram. Based on that, I thought, okay, it is a very beautiful metaphor. But now I had to know about the historical and sociological data to reveal the true reason regarding this choice. I kept on thinking that I had to do this sort of investigation. I did not want to believe in gods or demons. Neither I was looking for an anthropology that believed in them. My question is, to what extent does the classification of the belief in amulets and charms as fetishistic reveal the fear of the Christianity and the agnostic rationality linked with the university perspective about the basis of their unitary view of reality. I wanted to understand how anthropology as a genre of understanding is affected by the ideas and practices that challenge its fundamental ideas. In other words, I am looking for knowledge that will help me understand how to deal with the diversity of right and confliction versions. In some, these talks are mainly concerned with ethnography. Inspired by the study of the trajectory of some things and by the relationships that people established with them, I seek a better understanding of my ethnographic experience and of the challenges that anthropological theory brings to the ethnographic practice. Thanks for your interest and attention, and I hope I can have a good discussion.